All right, we are back. And, uh, you know, politics is something that you just can't get away from. I believe it was Pericles, he of ancient Athens, who once said, just because you don't take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. So it is we find ourselves unable to resist talking about political matters. And in fact, in a minute, we're going to see if we can't pull up for you the video clip from Bernie Sanders, about four minutes long, where he's talking about the Paradise Papers. Before we do that, let's, let's, let's go overseas to look at what's going on in Zimbabwe, a country that this correspondent has a great deal of affinity for. Because it is a beautiful country, not unlike California, with a population of great potential. But it has suffered over the years under the ham-fisted management of the dictator, in essence a dictator, Robert Mugabe. After 37 years, Mugabe is finally out, and Zimbabwe has to now try and pull itself back together. Writing about this in the current edition of The Economist, the magazine said... Having promised as at his inauguration on November 24th to hit the ground running, Emerson Mnangagwa, I hope I've got that right, has no time to lose. Somehow he must persuade Zimbabweans that he can improve their lives after 37 years of despotism and decline under Robert Mugabe. Already, people have been chuffed by one striking change. The police are almost nowhere to be seen in the streets of Harare, the capital, whereas previously they were ubiquitous, shaking down drivers for minor or fictitious traffic offenses. That is no small matter. It used to cost 10 to $20 to make a cop go away when a blue-collar urban wage is perhaps $250 a month. When the chief of police, Augustine Chihuri, swore allegiance to the new president at the inauguration ceremony, a roar of boos erupted across the stadium. Mr. Mangawa would earn easy plaudits if he sacked a man who failed utterly to curb corruption within the police. Mr. Chihuri is also reviled for his ties to Mr. Mugabe's unpopular wife, Grace, who had Mr. Mangawa chased out of the vice presidency and into exile barely three weeks ago. The new president's broader intentions will be shown by the cabinet he's expected to appoint imminently. He has already reinstated Patrick Chinamasa, whom Mr. Mugabe sacked in October as acting finance minister. By the abysmal standards of the ruling party ZANU-PF, Mr. Chenamasa is quite competent. His downfall had been precipitated by Mr. Mugabe's repeated refusal to meet the demands of the IMF, such as thinning the public sector and abolishing corrupt outfits as the price of unlocking the loans urgently needed to rescue an economy that is once again in rapid decline. A clutch of members of the previous cabinet are in hiding or under arrest, or have fled abroad. Most notably, Ignatius Chombo, Mr. Mugabe's last finance minister. He appeared in court in leg irons the day after the inauguration, charged with corruption, which he denies. At any rate, the article goes on to describe how there are people that hold out hope that the new leadership will do better than the old, and God, we hope so. And uh, closer to home, here in the U.S., we have the following entertaining little piece in The Economist regarding the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Said the magazine, Ben Carson, a celebrated neurosurgeon and unsuccessful presidential candidate, had no experience in political office or housing policy before Donald Trump nominated him to lead the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD. 
It was unclear what Dr. Carson, long skeptical about government assistance and social engineering more generally, would do with an agency that funds rental assistance schemes to the poor, only half of whom actually live in cities, despite what the department's name suggests. Magazine said HUD, with its annual budget of $46 billion, is a tiddler compared with other federal departments. But in several ways, it's sort of a miniature version of the Trump administration. In the nine months since he took the post, Dr. Carson has stayed inconspicuous and inscrutable. The agency seems directionless. Only four of the top 13 positions, which must be confirmed by the Senate, have been filled. No nominee has been announced to be either Inspector General or Head of the Policy Development and Research Office. Eric Trump's wedding planner runs the agency's largest regional office in New York. Local public housing agencies, which actually administer the federal programs with HUD funds, privately complain of uncertainty. Dr. Carson's most significant policy decision to date has been a two-year delay of the small area fair market rents. Anyway, we suspect that on a good day, the Department of Housing and Urban Development um, does not run like a well-oiled machine. But we're also pretty sure that it's not going to get any better under Dr. Ben Carson. We do feel pretty confident, however, that no matter how poorly he does, he will not be making a future court appearance wearing leg irons. All right, here's a guy item from the goofball file for the year 2017. This comes from last April. I'm not sure why we didn't talk about it, because it is our kind of story, but it goes like this. A gambler put $50 into a Fort Lauderdale slot machine and asked a friend to push the button for good luck, and then watched her claim the $100,000 jackpot. Jan Flatto, age 66, couldn't believe it when the slot machine's bells and lights flashed, and Marina Navarro, age 35, grabbed the prize money, insisting the winnings were hers. I said, Marina, what are you doing? said Flacco. But casino officials ruled that the person pushing the button is the actual gambler. Navarro walked out accompanied by a security guard, later texting Flatto to ask, Still hate me? My guess is the answer is yes. But be that a lesson to you, dear listener. <laughs> if you ask someone to push the button for luck. Another miscellaneous uh, file item. I, I think I reported a couple years ago about a trip to Norway. I, I did drive around the countryside a bit, visited Bergen, drove out of, of Oslo, uh, and enjoyed myself in doing that. Uh, but... Um, if I were to do it now, apparently I wouldn't have any FM radio because earlier this year, Norway dropped FM radio. Evidently, nationwide radio channels stopped their FM broadcasts and tra- transitioned to digital radio broadcasts over the Internet. I hope the rental cars are set up for this. Proponents in Norway say the new system will be cheaper and offer better sound quality and more listening options. Critics are worried about the effect on drivers, yeah, hello, and listeners of small radio stations. Yes, Mr. Min likes to point out, well, what if the internet goes down during an emergency? Wouldn't it be good to have terrestrial radio up and running? I think so. And apparently other countries are also considering dropping FM radio, including Britain, Switzerland, and Denmark. The Week magazine, repeating the New York Times article on this, said, it's unlikely to happen anytime soon in the U.S. We hope... Something that may happen sometime soon in the U.S. is you're going to pay a lot more for your internet. 
I've noticed that uh, all of the tech companies down in Silicon Valley seem strangely silent about uh, about this fight over net neutrality, which has to be the worst named concept out there. People talk about net neutrality and your eyes sort of glaze over. What they're talking about is a way to charge you more than so-called prime customers for the Internet providers. And this, of course, would also involve restriction of access to certain parts of the web, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in, in short, a really, really bad idea, which is, of course, favored by the FCC under Donald J. Trump. Writing about this in the New York Times, Tim Wu, someone we're keen to have on this program in the future, said the courts will have to save net neutrality. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai could be subject to a lawsuit for reversing these rules without good reason. And the argument that cable and phone companies, despite years of healthy profits, need to earn even more money than they already do, won't likely meet with many sympathetic judicial ears. By pursuing such drastic changes, the FCC may have overplayed its legal hand, says Tim Wu. Well, we'll see about that. I don't know about you, dear listener, but I haven't noticed the the government uh, going to bat very often for the citizenry against uh, some of the big players out there in um, the corporate world. Have you? Hey, we're going to pull that Bernie Sanders quote up here. Mr. McMillan? You believe that they have 20,000 corporations right in that building, five-story building. Of course, they don't have 20,000 corporations in that building. It's all a fraud. A group of investigative journalists released over 13 million files known as the Paradise Papers, exposing just how bad this situation has become. These papers show how a handful of oligarchs in the United States and throughout the world get richer, much richer, by hiding their wealth and profits offshore to avoid paying their fair share of taxes. You know, it's a funny thing. All of these American billionaires, they love the military and they love the veterans and they love schools and they love infrastructure, but they don't want to pay anything to maintain those institutions. They want you to pay. So they love the military, but it's your job to pay taxes to support the military, not them. The list of individuals involved in the Paradise Papers include billionaires like the Koch brothers, Sheldon Adelson, Carl Icahn, and Robert Mercer. And these are guys, by the way, while they're busy shielding their money from taxation, apparently have many, many hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on campaigns to elect right-wing extremists who will protect the wealthy and the powerful. They can't pay taxes but they do have a lot of money to spend in politics. It also includes such large financial institutions such as Wells Fargo, Citigroup, and Bank of America. Corporations like Apple, Nike, and ExxonMobil. And shock of all shocks, and I know you're really gonna be shocked to hear this, it includes members of the Trump administration like Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, Chief Economic Advisor Gary Cohn, and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Offshore tax evasion is a major problem not just for the United States, but for governments throughout the world. We must take action now to put an end to the socially damaging and extortionately costly scandal. In 2012, the Tax Justice Network released a statement and a report that is absolutely incredible. And in that report, they estimated that at least $21 trillion is being stashed in offshore tax havens all over the world. 
The situation has become so absurd that one five-story office building in the Cayman Islands is now the home of nearly 20,000 corporations. So that's the building that's right behind me. These corporations are using that address in the Cayman Islands in order to avoid taxes. In the United States, offshore tax evasion cost our government about $160 billion in lost revenue each and every year. That's money that could go to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure and create some 15 million good paying jobs. That's money that in a competitive global economy can be used to make public colleges and universities tuition free. That's money that could be used to provide high quality universal pre-K and child care to every infant, toddler and young child in our country. Now, I find it funny, certainly not surprising that instead of trying to crack down on offshore tax schemes, Trump and the Republicans in Congress are working overtime to pass legislation that would make this very bad situation even worse. Anyway, some uh, some food for thought from Senator Bernie Sanders, a man who may or may not be the oldest candidate for president uh, ever if he becomes the nominee three years hence. Frankly, we think we bet on the wrong horse uh, uh, last election cycle. We thought that Bernie Sanders would be thoroughly beaten up by the Roger Stones of the world. But uh, in retrospect, he would have probably been a stronger candidate than Hillary Clinton and would probably, probably be president today. But the Paradise Papers, uh, you know, reveals something that's, that's not new. The fact that the rich don't want to pay um, taxes and have a multiplicity of ways to avoid doing so that the average citizen does not have at his disposal. And uh, when it comes down to multinational corporations, well, shifting money across national borders, I think that's half the reason they exist. I can remember 30 years ago, reading a book which at the time was 20-something years old, was called The Sovereign State of ITT. The name of the author was Anthony Sampson. In fact, Anthony Sampson wrote a series of really, really excellent books back in like the 1960s about the state of the world, the state of large corporations. He wrote a wonderful book on uh, the Seven Sisters, referring to the oil companies which rule the world. But in a description of how ITT... Uh, divided and conquered. In great detail, he showed how it was that the company would <laughs> say to the tax collectors of one comp- uh, one country, well, our, our money was really made over in the other country. And, you know, of course, the other country, they'd say, no, it was made in another country A, not country B. And, and in doing so, they gained for themselves giant savings in taxation. It appears the governments of the world have never been able to really catch up with this and there seems to be even less prospect than ever that they will get a hold of these lost revenues. And the corporate giants that currently run the show in the United States, Alphabet, that's Google, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, all have followed the lead of these um, corporate trailblazers and found ways to uh, avoid taxation by setting up in states that give them a break. And what breaks they're not handed, they, they manage to find for themselves by, again, just moving money here and there. Who's, who's minding the store? One would like to think that uh, if Bernie Sanders was elected president, that um, this issue would be tackled. Frankly, I, I, don't, I don't think it will be. But we can hope, can't we? 
Of course, you look around in the Bay Area and see that Amazon is dangling the possibility of a second headquarters. And to get cities to um, invite them in, there's basically a bidding war going on. In the piece about this um, event in the San Jose Mercury News by Annie Siaka and Ramona Gilwagas, we have this. The prospect of an Amazon campus could stoke fears about its potential impact on the already crunched Bay Area housing market. Gee, you think? The housing site Apartment List found that the flood of Amazon employees to Seattle has coincided with rent increases. (laughs) What a surprise. That surpasses the rates for almost all other U.S. cities and the fastest growth rate nationwide in housing prices. Okay, does this continue to surprise people? Peace notes that Stacy Mitchell, co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, was skeptical that winning Amazon's bid would be all that good for local economics. A November 2016 report from the Institute found that between 2005 and 2014, half of Amazon's new fulfillment centers received public incentives totaling $613 million. And the company received another $147 million in subsidies connected to its data centers during these years. Man, this, this is the same game being played with stadiums around the country, is it not? Get the public to underwrite your costs and then, and then assure the public that they're doing wonderful things for them. Oh yeah, Mr. Miller, did you have that tune that you were going to play for the, the Oakland Raider fans? Yeah, that's right. As a reward for uh, all those years of being great fans, the uh, the Davis family uh, decided to up and move the Raiders again to another city because they got a- an offer from the powers that be in elsewhere USA. First it was Los Angeles, now it's Las Vegas. How long before they come crawling back to Oakland and to, wel- to the welcome arms of-, of the knuckleheads in the East Bay? Also sounding off about this idea of Amazon's headquarters being... Uh, uh, something that induces a bidding war. Robert Reed, writing in the Chicago Tribune, said a few months ago, I think it's obnoxious for a healthy company to insist on getting these enticements. But not, but it's now a fact of corporate life. If one city doesn't play ball, another will. But in this case, the benefits outweigh the publicly backed giveaways. Also writing about this Amazon venture in the New York Times, Timothy Egan said, Cities in the running should be careful about what they wish for. Well before Amazon disrupted books, music, television, furniture, everything, it disrupted Seattle. Here in the home of its first headquarters, Amazon has detonated a prosperity bomb. Sure, we got tens of thousands of high-paying jobs, but the median home price has doubled in the past five years to $700,000. The traffic is maddening, and Amazon occupies a full fifth of our best office space. The company has quite simply altered our city in ways residents never had any say over. In writing in Time.com, Katie Steinmetz said the victor will no doubt have to fork over billions in tax breaks. That's likely to be a raw deal for locals because when a company attracts new people to a region, public costs, hiring more teachers, fielding more 911 calls, widening roadways often rise substantially. If Amazon gets a pass on contributing, residents will be rewarded with a higher tax bill. Isn't this obvious? Well, I guess it is obvious to a lot of people. 
But, you know, if you find a way to get on the Amazon gravy train, you're going to just roll down the track. And uh, speaking of high tech, which I guess we are, we haven't bagged on it on this show much so far. Well, we need to correct that. Let's go to this piece in New Scientist titled, Write Yourself Invisible. It's an article about how we have to be concerned now about how we might be identified by our writing styles. I mean, big data is looking at just about everything else, isn't it? I'm sure it's looking at this also. But at any rate, in this piece by, Mar- by Michael Erard, described as writer-in-residence at the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics in the Netherlands. Psycholinguistics. Well, that's what this is all about. Well, he had this to say. Genius, billionaire, camera shy. These are the few things we can say about Satoshi Nakamoto, the founder of Bitcoin. But we still don't know who he, she, or it actually is. Nakamoto has shaken up the financial world, but has not been heard of since 2011. And no one has definitively identified the person behind the name, though many have tried. Now, some fresh claims that the world's most elusive billionaire have been unmasked, all thanks to their writing style. In 2014, a group of students at Ashton University, UK, led by forensic linguist Jack Grieve, analyzed Nakamoto's academic paper about Bitcoin published in 2008. They found clues to the writer's identity in the frequency of innocuous words like still and only, and in punctuation patterns such as the use of commas before and and but. These match the writing style of cryptocurrency polymath Nick Zabo. And earlier this year, American entrepreneur and political pundit Alexander Muse claimed that the U.S. National Security Agency used similar techniques to identify Nakamoto, although whether the analysis also pointed to Zabo is not public knowledge. These efforts to chase down Nakamoto raise interesting questions about how we reveal our identities every time we write something. How much can be discerned about an author from the way they write? As digital communication proliferates, what are the clues hidden in our tweets, emails, and messages that might give us away? And with the rise of software that can analyze masses of data and look for patterns, is there any way to hide? Every time we speak or write, we shed huge amounts of information about who we are, what we do, and where we come from. Detectives have used the written word to solve crimes for centuries. But in the past few decades, computers have taken on some of the heavy lifting, analyzing patterns in the swaths of digital information we now churn out. This stylometric analysis is standard fare in undergraduate computer science classes and is at the heart of plagiarism policing software used every day by universities and publishers, as well as by experts trying to identify criminals from their written traces online. Most often, the aim is to either figure out precisely who wrote some text or to identify traits of the unknown author, their age, gender, education level, or native language. The analysts usually begin with a lineup of possible authors and samples of their writing from which experts or software extract highly salient features. Pretty interesting stuff. The article goes on to note that salient patterns, whether in word choices, sentence structures, or unconscious frequencies of function words, point to the remarkable flexibility of language. Linguists used to believe that we all learn a single uniform grammar of a language, then begin to deviate from it to express our personalities. More prevalent now is the idea that we each possess a mental model of our own language, one that differs in slight but important ways from those of others, due to the social and emotional contexts in which we learn it. 
This leads to individual ways of writing, according to Sin Chun Chen, a computer scientist at the University of Arizona, who first articulated the notion of a right print, the linguistic equivalent of a fingerprint. A right print is made up of such subtle differences in our writing style, such as vocabulary, sentence length, layout of paragraphs, and so on. The article asks, how do you evade those trying to take your linguistic fingerprint? In one sense, it's easy. So imagine there are 100 authors who have each submitted a text, and you don't want anyone to be able to tell which one you wrote. All you have to do is make your text look like one of the other 99 authors. This works well in some cases. In one study at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley, Sadia Afranz and her colleagues at Drexel University in Pennsylvania asked people to write about their morning as if they were in the style of U.S. writer Cormac McCarthy. A stylometric program that had already been trained on McCarthy's writing was fooled. It thought they, too, were the real thing. Unfortunately, people generally prove to be enduring amateurs at identifying the right changes to make. They gave the example of a ransom note, where the identity of the writer was, uh, was figured out, noting that, unfortunately for his linguistic subterfuge, he spelled some difficult words correctly, while spelling some easy words incorrectly, and inconsistently they revealed the ploy. They quote an authority as saying, if an individual tries to obfuscate through writing by making it look like someone different from themselves, they'll usually inadvertently create even more features that can be traced back. They describe one researcher being involved with the case of Jamie Starbuck in 2013. Starbuck spent nearly three years traveling the world sending emails that purportedly came from his wife, Debbie. It turned out he'd murdered her 31 months earlier a week after the marriage, but only began imitating her writing style when her relatives became suspicious. She was a heavy user of the semicolon and would use it in idiosyncratic ways. But Starbucks suddenly started using many more semicolons, but he couldn't bring himself to use them in the right way. He was eventually arrested when he arrived back in the UK and sentenced to life in prison. No, Mr. Miller, he was sentenced for murder, not for improper use of the semicolon. Oh. Okay, yeah. Anyway, naturally, there's various apps out there and programs that disguise your writing so that others can't tell who you are. And this does raise the usual question of what are you worried about if you're obeying the law? And, and while that's, that's a good point, you know, you shouldn't necessarily be overly concerned about this. Uh, I would say that the fact that, you know, this goes into that heading of big data, ways that can identify who exactly you are for the purposes of selling that information to whomever, is why we should be concerned about it. Anyway, uh, let's, let, let's close by dissecting some buzzwords, shall we? A piece in the week from last March took a look at some things you see in advertising and explained what they mean or don't mean, starting with natural. This isn't a term defined by the FDA. It doesn't necessarily mean anything about the purity of a product. If your aim is to avoid chemicals, simply read the ingredient list and then beware of unfamiliar words. The term organic can be used on a product provided it consists of at least 95% organically produced ingredients. Whatever's not organic will be USDA-approved substances too. Vegan is not a federally regulated label, but it indicates an absence of animal products or byproducts, including things like beeswax. Cruelty-free usually equates to zero animal testing. 
Gluten-free foods aren't regulated by the FDA, but gluten-free cosmetics aren't. The magazine notes that's rarely a worry unless you really are gluten-sensitive and you're shopping for lip products. And finally, fair trade. These are products that come from farms that meet strict social, environmental, economic, and safety standards. Also, the manufacturer must invest in the farm's communities. So now you know. All right, that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. We would have to say uh, season's greetings to all of you. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and I guess a cool Kwanzaa. Don't let the shopping burden get you down, and we'll see you next week at the same time. Oh, I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax.